All right. This afternoon, I worked on uh, Psalm 90. We'll probably do that on Wednesday. But since we've spent, I don't know, what, 22, 23, who knows how many sermons, um, working on this situation that still trying to find out all the, the right answers, I thought what we'd do tonight is kind of back up a little bit and just try to offer some summary things to give us like, okay, this is what we do know. Because we still didn't answer all the questions. Everybody, everybody realized we still didn't, I mean... We, there's only so much we can do at some point. So here's what we can do. If you have a uh, Trinity hymnal, uh, turn back to the Westminster Confession. I'm going to pull up London Baptist in mine, but if I can find it. Books. Right, here's the London Baptist. Uh, find the uh, chapter on justification, page 855, it's chapter 11, page 855 in the, in the Trinity hymnal, uh, page 30 if you have the pamphlet of the, of the London Baptist. If there's a major difference in the two, someone please raise their hand and point it out because I have the London Baptist in front of me. We're going to also be referring to Hodge. Now, when I start reading in Hodge, uh, half of his systematic theology is in Latin. Okay, so um, there'll be parts I'll be skipping around. Okay, so when we get there, I've already kind of uh, marked out at least uh, part of the of the Hodge's systematic theology that's in actually in English. So, uh, But when we get over to uh, sanctification, um, we'll be going through his systematic theology. But we're going to look at justification and we're going to look at sanctification. All right? Now, I want to make sure we realize this. That whatever problem we come to in trying to deal with this, if we are left, if we are left with throwing out our definition of justification, what's the only other def- definition we can go to? The only other definition we can go to would be the Catholic definition. Okay. I mean, I, the, I mean, just to try to say, well, it's just an acquittal. I mean, that that one in what view number two uh, wasn't really much of a definition. All right, um, and and I don't even think the Bible, um, the Bible definitely doesn't support that because in Romans four it talks about being uh, basically declared righteous by faith. Well, that has to deal with imputation. So, so let's keep that in mind. So, if we go with the Catholic definition of justification. Remember that no matter how good it sounds, right? Because it sounds like, okay, it's trying to deal with both sides. What's the biggest problem with it? The biggest problem is it sounds like, okay, man, I start out my justification by faith, but it ultimately turns into what? It's going to turn into, I mean, you're not guaranteed justification. I mean, it's not even a, it's not even a, I don't even know what you call it. I mean, because you can lose it and get it back. And so, um, I, you know, basically the, when the Bible says God is the, ju- is the justifier, he's not the justifier of anything. He's just making justification possible. That's all he's ultimately doing. So, so, we can, uh, so I just want you to realize that these definitions become almost critical. All right, so we're going to go through this and try to figure this out. All right, chapter 11 of justification. Everybody ready? All right, the, both the Westminster and the LBC, the London Baptist, should start something like this. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth. All right, everybody got that? 
Now, the key there, just make sure you know, effectually calleth. This brings up the idea of the doctrine of calling. There is a general call. There's an effectual call. All right, we don't need to get into all of that. Just make sure you know that. So who are the ones that are going to be justified? Those who are effectually called. All right? All right. The general call just goes out to everybody, and people can do what with the general call? Ignore it. I basically say no. The effectual call, God begins to change a person. It's clearly a very reformed idea, but we, we won't get into all of that. Now, this is very key. How does this justification occur? Not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. All right? So, how does this, what, what does not occur according to this definition within justification? What does not occur? Righteousness is not infused. Now, everybody knows what that means, right? In other words, you're not made righteous internally. You're not given righteousness. Yeah, no transformation occurs uh, uh, under this point. All right, just keep that in mind. All right, um, and then um, and he doesn't infuse, but what does he do? He pardons their sins. Everybody see that? He and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, he accounts and accepts them as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them um, as their righteousness by imputing Christ's active. Okay, stop right here. This is very important. He doesn't say, Oh, you believe, therefore I'm going to make you righteous, but it is by faith that I am accounted righteous. And it's not like my, we would argue that faith itself is a gift from. God. It's not even our own faith. Okay, now this is a very reformed perspective. Okay, there are many, uh, there's many non-reformed people who are very Catholic in some of these ideas, and this is very reformed idea, but that will we'll continue on, all right? Uh, but by imputing Christ active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience into his, in his death for their whole and soul righteousness. So what is given to them for their whole and soul righteousness? The active and passive obedience. Now, I want to make sure everybody understands that. That's the key. I mean, once, to me, once this definition of justification is accepted, whatever you're going to do about being judged according to works cannot turn around and violate this. Remember, that's the major point I'm emphasizing over and over and over. So what is imputed to your account? And passive obedience. And what do we mean by his active obedience? Kept the whole law. Now, if he kept, the, now, now I'm going to just think this logically, right? If, if his obedience is accredited to my account, that means every law in the Bible he kept. Right? Now, if it's accredited to my account and I come over here and stand before God, he can't go, I, he, he can't look to me and go, okay, um, you, well, you didn't do this, you did do this, you did. What does that have to do with it? Because what obedience has been given to me? The whole law has been kept. And it's accredited to my account. 
That, I, I don't understand how we can get around that unless this entire justification idea is wrong. And then I don't know what we're left with. Okay, what does uh, Westminster say? Do they say active and passive obedience? Oh, they do not. Okay. This is important. Okay. Well, it's imputing obedience and satisfaction. Okay. Obedience would be, what that, that would probably refer to the act of obedience and satisfaction refer to his passive obedience, that he satisfied God's wrath on the cross. So it's, it's the same. Stated differently, but the same concept. I was afraid it was going to be completely different. I didn't think it was. All right. So everybody got that. that you see how important that is? All right. They, uh, I mean, back up here. Um, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and sole righteousness, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. So they even argue that what is not ours? Our faith, that is even given. Now, the uh, London Baptist provides us a number of scriptures. Let's just write these down and look at them. Go to Romans chapter 3. Everybody there? We talked about this passage this morning, but we're going to read it again. These are passages you need to have like locked down because this, these are these are passages that are absolutely critical to to you know whatever, you know wherever else we go in Romans, these are going to become come back over and over and over. Right here we go, Romans chapter three, start in verse twenty three. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Would everyone agree that's bad news? Yeah, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and I think that implies that's going to be the human condition over and over and over and over again. And if you tell me, well, God is going to produce all these works in you, are you telling me he's going to produce works where I no longer fall short of his glory? And I don't think anyone can say that because every, every view agrees that no one's going to be perfect. I mean, the Catholic system wouldn't have an entire system of penance and confession if they believed everyone was going to be perfect, Right? Okay, right? So nobody believes anyone's going to be perfect. All right, well, if no one's going to be perfect, then that immediately brings up the question, what work would ever be satisfactory proof that I would be saved? I don't think I could ever have enough. But so what's the solution to this bad news? Being justified freely. And what's the idea of being justified freely? Okay, remember they talked about wage and reward and debt and earning and merit I am justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How is it going to occur? By freely, by grace, through his redemption. In other words, what? Through what Jesus did. That removes me from the picture. Verse 25, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. All right? Now we got propitiation, we got righteousness. That seems pretty clear. Would you agree? All right? Go to Romans chapter 8, verse 30. 
Now, I've been thinking of Romans 8.30 a lot lately um, about this entire problem, and you'll see why, because this one is so important. All right? In fact, let's go all the way back. Um, we'll go back to uh, verse 29. All right, everybody ready? Romans 8.29. Let's follow this logic here. For whom God, for whom he did foreknow. All right, there we have foreknowledge, right? And when we say foreknowledge, God knows everything beforehand, all right? Um, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the, uh, be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, he does, there is a predestination to, to, to being conformed. I do agree there, all right? But what do we have here? Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also Glorified. Now, please note, what is missing in that verse? And some will say, well, conformed. But conformed can deal with glorification. Right? He saves me that I will ultimately be conformed to his image and glorification. What is not listed there? Sanctification. It goes from foreknowledge, predestination, uh, calling, Justification, glorification. I, I, I think I, I got those all right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like, I, don't you agree that that's a key verse? And so who's doing it all? Now, here's the thing. If God is the one justifying me, and remember, this is the problem, right? Because according to at least the Catholic view, if we go with their definition of justific- justification, uh, Stacy made this point when we were talking about it, because sometimes Catholics would try to say, well, there's two justifications. There's the one you start with and then your final one, right? And the first one starts by grace. Well, Stacy was like, if there's two justifications and the second one is by works, then what's the, fr- what's the point of the first one? Because that means it's not true justification. It just, it's just saying you have the chance. Now, of course, they come along and say, well, God's going to be the one producing the works. God's going to be the one producing the works. Well, if God's going to be the one producing the works, can't he produce enough works to get me out of purgatory? And they're like, well, no, 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 because you can stop the work. Well, then who's doing the justify? And in the Protestant side, who says, hey, if God saves you, he's going to work through you, so you're going to have enough works to prove your salvation. Well, wait a minute. How many works do I need? And, are, and, and now what's going to be the basis of my salvation? It's going to be my works. I, I, I don't even understand. Like These verses seem to contradict all of that. All right, go to Romans chapter 4, which we all know is one of the key verses or key passages. Romans chapter 4, everybody there. Verse 1, what shall we say then that Abraham our, our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scriptures? Abraham believed God and was counted unto him for righteousness. Right, that, is faith, that is being declared righteous by faith. All right. Verse 4, now, now, now to him that worketh is the reward, not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Remember all that discussion this morning in the Catholic view about, uh, about reward and debt and merit? Remember all of that? What did they just come along and say? 
Yeah, if you're working, it's a reward, and it's not reckoned uh, of grace, but of debt. Now, they used what to prove their point? Parables. Now, I do agree those parables have a work, reward, debt, merit mentality. I, you can't deny that. But which takes precedent? A parable or a clear teaching on the subject? I would think from a hermeneutical standpoint, what would I want to rely on? Well, Paul is, is laying out. Because in those parables, we don't even know if, 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 it, if those parables were designed to teach us about salvation. Those parables could have been designed to teach us all kinds of other points. Right? What else happens in verse 5? But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And who is he justifying? The ungodly. And that what it says in verse 5? Right, okay. And it doesn't say he justifies the ungodly and they're justified if they stop being ungodly. That's not seem, seeming to be the point. Verse 6, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are Covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Right? Seems pretty clear. Now, I do know that in James, James reads the story of Abraham very differently. Right? So, I would like to continue here, but look in James and tell me where you find Abraham being mentioned in the book of James. We do need to consider, because uh, all the views end up going to James except the first one. Go to the book of James and see where you find Abraham being mentioned. All right, let's go to James. All right, now remember, James is a problematic book. I'll be the first to agree, right? Luther hated it, okay? I I don't think he even wanted it included in the canon, okay? Because it's a problematic book, okay? Now we've talked about it before, Um See, where does it start? Let's go. Where do we want to start? Let's go to verse 10. James 2. Let's go to verse 10. All right. Everybody there? James 2.10. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of... Now, let's just stop and take that, and let's say that means what it seems to say. All right, if my, if my justification has anything to do with, I, what, with what I can do, then the minute I violate one law, I'm done. Would everyone agree that would seem to be the case? Right? So even, now just think about this. Remember the, the evidential view that MacArthur and everyone spout? Okay, you've got to have enough works to prove you're saved. Well, if, if, I, if, if I have one sin... I'm guilty of breaking every law, so what works could I have enough to prove? Right? Every person who stands before God is going to have broken a law. Does everybody understand that? Okay, all right. Verse 11, For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So, see, if you break one, you've transgressed the whole law. This this brings about what kind of feeling? 
despair. All right? So, verse 12. So speak ye, and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment for he shall have judgment without mercy that hath shown no mercy and mercy rejoice, rejoiceth against judgment. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? Now that seems directly contradictory, does it not? What did we just read in Romans? We read in Romans that faith, faith is the key to everything, right? We believe and we're accounted righteousness. Now he's coming along saying, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you, if one of you say unto him, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, what, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? It, now, I think we can all agree that it doesn't profit anyone. All right? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith and and." I have works, show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O O vain man, that faith without works is dead? He's stressing that point. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Now, let me ask a question. All right. Now, this is not a a, a great way to try to interpret this, because I don't really, I mean, how do you interpret that? Does that not seem absolutely contradictory to what Paul just said? Now, I know Protestants come along and go, well, see, if you truly are a Christian, then you won't do any, then you will do this, this, and this. Well, according to James, if I mess up one time, right? So what, what, what is he referring to? I, I do not know. Let's, let's continue on here, all right? I'll offer kind of an interpretation here in a minute. He goes, thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Now, wait a minute. Is that going to contradict what we just read in Romans? See, uh, seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Now, I'm going to make an argument, and I don't know if this is a good argument, because I don't know what else to do with this passage. I will argue this. Before God, now please note this, before God, the New Testament seems to imply, how do I have right standing before God? According to the New Testament, what does the New Testament seem to say is required for me to have right standing before God? Faith, right? Faith in Christ, and then what is imputed to my account? Righteousness is passive and active obedience, right? However, What is required for me to be justified in the sight of people? Works. Now, I don't know if James is making an argument that, hey, your faith without works is dead, and faith without works is dead in the sight of people. It's not going to do anyone any good. It's not going to help anyone. It's not going to do anything. 
So you can't walk around talking about how, how justified you are unless something is seen. Does that make sense? Now, I'm not saying that's a perfect... There's a million problems with that interpretation, but what else do you do with it? Right. Yes. Right, they did. But we can't turn around and say that they were justified before God by those actions. But they were justified before man before their, because of their actions. Which leads us to Hebrews chapter 11, which says, by faith... What, what does it say over and over and over in Hebrews 11? By faith... Then it lists what they did. By faith... They did. By faith, they did. By faith. And, and Hebrews 11 is the example of faith. Is that, did that faith, did those actions justify them before God? Or did those actions justify them before man? That, right. That, that's the only, ex- that's, uh, do you have a better solution? What's your, what's your solutions for uh, James? What, what, let's list them. What, what are your possibilities in dealing with James? Well, let me, give, okay, let me give you your possibilities. Possibility number one, James trumps Romans. So we're not truly justified by faith and we're not imputed righteousness and our entire definition of justification is wrong and therefore, what are you going to do to be saved? You've got to work. You've got to work. And how, and how are you going to be justified? By your works. All right? Now, what's the problem with that view? No, we said that James would trump the other passages. Okay, James trumps the other, because that would be required for this to work. Okay, but what's the problem with this? Come on, everyone think, think. I gave you James 2, it's open book. James 2 provides you the problem with that view. What's the problem with that view in James 2? If we go with James and we say that trumps uh, Romans and your justification is based on your works, what's the problem according to James 2? There we go. If we break one, we're done. It's not, it's not attainable. Does everyone understand that? Okay? If, if James is saying, hey, the way you're supposed to be justified before God is by doing your works, and if you don't do works, then you have a dead faith, he goes on, he starts the entire section by demanding what kind of works? Perfect. And if you miss one, you've transgressed the entire law. So could you ever work enough to be saved? No. So, the, so that, view, you, that view falls apart from James itself. Does that make sense? Or you have to do this. He's only speaking of external sins. Well, it came, but that's, the New Testament always views sin as something more than an external act. Would everyone agree with that? Okay, all right. So, what's, so that's option number one, and option number one falls apart. What would be option number two? Option number one, James trumps everything else. We are justified by works. We see the problem. James 2 would condemn us immediately. Nobody here would be able to go home tonight thinking they're justified. Everybody agree that's a problem? The, another problem is, is how many works do I have to do to prove? I mean, the example he gives is a big one. 
That's Abraham offering up his son. So you've got to be willing to take off your son and put a knife through his heart. I mean, that, that's kind of the kind of work that's required to prove it. Okay, that, that's a problem. All right? So if that view doesn't work, what's, your, what's an, another option? If, if that view doesn't work, what would be another option in dealing with James? The only other possibility is the one I've given you, that is dealing with a justification before people, not a justification before God, because he makes it clear if, if someone comes to you needing clothes and you're like, hey, go away, be filled, you didn't help them. Did, do you look justified in their eyes? No. All right. So that would be view number two. Is there a problem with view number two? What would be the problem with view number two? The problem with view number two would be the text doesn't really seem to say that this is speaking of justification before men. It seems to imply it's speaking of a justification before God. Would everyone agree that that seems to be the emphasis of the text? All right, so that would be a problem. All right, so what's view number, what's possibility number one? James trumps everything else. And what is James saying? You will be justified by your works. All right? So you've got to work your way into heaven. All right, what's the problem with that view? Number one, the text says if you mess up once, you're guilty of all. That would make sure everyone is condemned. What would be problem number two? The only example it offers is the kind of work that would justify you is pretty big, right? I mean, I mean it offers you know, feeding anyone who's... who's that. I mean, it, it gives you a pretty high standard that no one's going to ultimately live out all the time. Would everyone agree? Okay, so that's, that's the problem with that. View number two is what? That it is only speaking of a justification before man, not a justification before God. What's the problem with that view? The text doesn't seem to state, state it that way. We have to read that into. What's view number three? What's the third view you can have? We covered all of this when we worked on the book of James when we were doing the Bible study guides. What's possibility number three? We got, we got to come up with a, a, some options here. What's, what would be an, a third option? All right, the third option is that this would be teaching what every Protestant does with the text. This is what every... I mean, the, the, everyone here should know the third one because it's the only view accepted within the entire Protestant world. View number three is your works prove you're saved. So, hey, guess what? If you don't feed people who have need, if you're not willing to offer up your son, if you're not willing to do everything, then guess what? You're not saved. The evidential view would be the only other view. Now, what's the problem with the evidential view? What's the the problem with the evidential view according to James? James gives you the problem. If you violate one, you're guilty of all, so how many works... I can't come up with enough works to overcome the evidence that I'm guilty of all. Does that make sense? That doesn't work either. All right? And what's a possible fourth view? Yeah, I need to have these written down because I guarantee you at some point we're going to say these again and you're going to all go silent on me like you don't know what I'm talking about. So, all right? Because we've cut... We, 
We've covered these like 9,000 times, okay? Like this should be like ingrained in your brain. You should be able to write a book on this, okay? All right, view number four is what? Okay, let's go through these. What's view number one? James trumps everything else, and James is teaching that you are justified before God by your works. What's the problem with it? James says in the same chapter that one sin makes us a transgressor of the entire law. What else was another problem in James? It, it seems to be saying, hey, you better do something big to prove it. Okay, well, wow, that's... How many times does... Did, in other words, here's the key. Did, was Abraham justified because he offered up his son, but somehow he's excused by all the times he lied? Or when he did not have faith? So he was not justified until the day he took Isaac. He was, he was lost the whole time. Yeah, probably even after that, he probably did. Yeah, well, we know he did because he's a human being, right? Okay, so you're, you're telling me that after he offered Isaac, he never committed another sin. It doesn't work. But that one, I guess that one work was sufficient? I mean, see, it doesn't make any sense. All right, so that's view number one. And what's view number two? Okay, deal with justification before people, not God. What's the, that one has its problem because the text doesn't seem to indicate it. What's the strength of that one? Well, we remove the contradiction with Romans. Right. He's talking about things done before people, how it hurts the, the body. Don't do this to people. He's speaking of actions that impact other people and other people see. I, I think that, that that makes sense, all right? But I'm, I'm not saying it's perfect. It's not perfect, okay? Uh, view number three? Works prove you're saved. What's the problem with this one? If works prove I'm saved, what happens when the Bible says that one sin makes me guilty of every law? I would never have enough work to overcome the one. Everybody see that, how that's a problem? And James is the one who says that. Right? What would be view number four? James and Paul contradicts. End of story. We have a contradiction that cannot be reconciled. Okay, That's why Luther wanted it gone. That's why Luther wanted it gone. He knew it was a contradiction. He knew that there was a problem. He wanted it gone. Now, what's, our, what's the problem with uh, view number four? Okay, well, number one, we can't get rid of James. All right, we can't throw it out of the canon. All right. And uh, number two, we, we, we don't believe the scriptures contradict themselves. All right, so everybody see that? I mean, y'all, y'all need to have this worked out, okay? So... And, and, and just make sure, and, and one of the biggest issues is some of, and, and, and you can write this down as number five, some of those views, what's the biggest problem with some of those views? They go against the definition of justification we've already seen outlined elsewhere. That's the biggest problem. So we'd have to come up with a view that doesn't do what? That contradict. And the only view that I know that doesn't contradict was, this is speaking of justification before men, where Romans is speaking of justification before God, and that we are justified before God by faith, we're justified before men by what we do and how we live. And even then, we're never justified perfectly, agreed? Right? I mean, you do one thing in front of people, and they're like, okay, great, and then the next day you mess up, and all of a sudden, you're a hypocrite, and you're not a Christian. All right, Uh, they have some more scriptures here. Go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. 
All right, that took a lot longer than I wanted, but that's okay. And a roundabout way, that was good because every chapter, uh, almost every section of the book that we worked on, the four views, they all mentioned James. So we just kind of took care of it that way. All right, Ephesians 1.7, we read this this morning. Speaking of Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Why is that verse so important? What redeems us? Blood of Christ. How do we get the forgiveness of sins? Through his blood. According to the riches of his grace. Like if I start throwing works in here, then the whole thing, what did Jesus do? Remember that was the question we kept asking? What did Jesus do? All right, they go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 30. All right. Verse 29 says that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Uh, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Why am I glorying in the Lord? Okay. What, what things are he uh, for us, to us? Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He's that for me. Right? Well, if he's that for me, well then, James comes along and tries to argue, no, he's not really that for you. I don't think that's, I can't interpret James that way. Does that, does that make sense? All right. Romans chapter 5. Going through this as quickly as I can. Going to run out of time. Romans chapter 5, everybody there, verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Now, please note, whose offense is he referring to? Adam's. That's accredited to your account. Did you do anything? You're condemned in Adam. Now, we do know, we we do sin, right? Okay. And now, some would argue that Adam's guilt is accredited to your account. And his sinful nature is in, in you. And some would try to argue the opposite for Jesus. But you see, here he's only referring to the fact, the fact that Adam's guilt is my guilt. Right? Okay. Um, Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made Righteous. Now, I do agree that there's, that's a tricky verse because some could argue, well, wait a minute. In Adam, we are guilty, but we also are sinners. Well, we're born sinners with a sinful nature, but we don't necessarily inherit Adam's sin. We just inherit his nature. Now, we could argue that within Christ, we do inherit a spiritual nature, which should lead to a different life. But what's the basis of our justification? Christ, his righteousness being credited to my account. So that one's a little tricky. We could have some problems with that, but okay. All right. 
Um, they have some more passages, but we'll, we'll move on to the next paragraph. All right. Paragraph two. Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. Now, this is important. All right. So let's look at this. Uh, faith receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. What is the alone instrument of justification? Faith. Right. Yet, it is not alone in the person justified. But it is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. Now, what is this saying? You're justified by faith, you're made righteous, but it does not remain alone what comes with it. All other graces so that your faith is not a dead faith. Now, I got no problem making that claim but here's my problem. You can't turn around and make that, okay, now how, how do I know you're justified? Not because of what Christ did, but because of these other saving graces and what works it produced. Because that sounds like what? An infusion of something that after, that's, oh, I have problems with that. I have problems. I have problems. Okay. Um, and we see the passages they quote. Go to Romans chapter 3. Or if you're using the London Baptist, you see them. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Everybody see that? How am I justified? By faith. All right. Now, they're going to add to this. Go to Galatians 5, 6. Galatians 5, 6. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. All right. So they say there's a faith that worketh by love. They're kind of making an argument that faith will do something. Okay, maybe. Not going to get into a big argument here. It's still not helpful. Then they're going to quote James 2, 17, which says what? They're going to quote James 2.17, James uh, 2.22, and James 2.26, which is going to tell us over and over that faith without works is what? Dead. Faith without works is dead. So they're going to make this argument. This is how they're going to make an argument. This is how they make their argument. I'm going to paraphrase. And you can tell me if you agree with this or don't agree with this. How are you justified? By faith. However, the faith that justifies is a living faith that will produce works. So therefore, if you don't have works, your faith is not real. Therefore, if your faith is not real, it can't bring about justification. All right, that, that, that's a little troubling because that sounds a little bit like what? The evidential side. All right. Do, can we agree that a living faith should look alive? I agree, but, can, but doesn't everyone account for the fact that no matter how alive it looks, what's going to constantly be shown? Sin and disobedience. So if I start... Now, please note, they didn't say anything about this proves anything, did they? 
They're just making an argument that saving faith, the faith that God gives us, is a living faith that should do something. I got no problem with that. But you also have to account that, that people with a living faith can do a lot of messed up stuff. David believed in God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He was a man after God's own heart. Did a lot of stuff. Agreed? All right. So, the issue is making an argument that, hey, if you truly believe, Diane, it should be shown. That's one thing, but I can't turn around and go, however, this work is going to be the thing that proves you're saved. I can't do that. All I can say is it should. Because the ultimate... The ultimate determination is if that, if you tr- put, truly put your faith in Christ, is God's work accredited to your account. I mean, I, I, I don't know. All right, let's continue paragraph three. Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are justified. Everybody see that? Now, if he fully discharged all the debt, what are you back to? What work can I prove that all the debt's been discharged because no work I have is going to be perfect? And guess what? What work can you look at and go, well, you don't have enough work. Well, I don't have enough work, but guess what? All that debt has been... And did by the sacrifice of himself and the blood of his cross, undergoing in their stead the penalty due unto them, make a proper, real, and full satisfaction. In other words, did God truly, did Jesus truly satisfy the wrath of God? They claim, yes. And if he truly satisfied the wrath of God, then, and by faith I have that, then if I don't have enough works, you can't come around and put the wrath of God back on me. Does that make sense? Right. Continue. To God's uh, justice and their behalf, yea, insomuch as he was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, and both freely, not for anything in them, their justification is only a free grace, that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. Simply put, Christ took care of everything. Took care of the debt. Took care of it all. So what can, how can you demand something else? Now, I know the previous paragraph kind of argued that you do have to demand something else. I think it's simply just arguing that true faith will do something. But it's not making an argument that there's a certain amount or somehow you look at it for evidence. Agreed? I think they didn't say that. All right, all right. Verse, paragraph four, God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect and Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit, death and time, do actually apply Christ unto them. Right, I'm not going to get into that because if you don't know what that is, paragraph four just taught you uh, limited atonement. Right. But we won't get into that whole discussion because we've, we've been dealing with enough problems. All right, we're not going to get into limited atonement. Their argument is he justifies the elect, doesn't justify everyone else. So therefore, if he only justifies the elect, then Christ only died for the elect. But just remember, don't ever get caught up in the limited atonement because if you don't believe in limited atonement, you say Christ died for everyone. It's just he didn't justify anyone until you believe. Well, guess what? The justification is only good for whom? Those who believe. And in limited atonement, who's the justification good enough for? Dealing. All right. So you see, it's just it's a, a stupid argument to even have. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Paragraph five. God, God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, 
Yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure, and in that condition they have not usually the light of the continents restored unto them until they humbly humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith in repentance and repentance. Please note, what does that acknowledge? It's still sin. And again, if you say, if you make any allowance for sin, do you see how foolish it is to make an argument that my works have to be good enough to prove I'm saved? Because now you're saying, well, you can only sin so much. The justification of believers under the Old Testament was in all these respects one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. All right? Now, go to chapter 13. I wanted to go to Hodge, but we're not going to get to Hodge. That's okay. What's chapter 13? Sanctification. All right. Everybody ready? Here we go. We've got five minutes. Here we go. I'm going to read fast, but we'll see. We're going to read until, we find, until the wheels come off, okay? And once the wheels come off, we'll just stop. Right here. It won't, probably won't take very long. All right. Chapter 13 of Sanctification. Paragraph 1. They who are united to Christ effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also further farther sanctified really and personally through the same virtue by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed and the several Lust thereof are more and more weakened and mortified and they more and more quickened and strengthened and all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Oh boy. Okay. Someone summarize that for me. Someone summarize what they just said. They make an argument that when you're saved, one of the part one of the parts of this is what? Is regeneration. Okay? And what occurs in regeneration? You are made alive, right? You receive a new heart, a new spirit. That is working now inside of you. And that work inside of you produces what? According to what we just read? Well, it destroys something. The body of sin. And, and the dominion of sin is destroyed, right? So in other words, it no longer has dominion. And then what's the, uh, what's the uh, side effect of that happening? Bottom line is, according to this view, when it comes to sanctification, I'm getting ready to sneeze. <coughs> Pardon me for those listening online. I just blew out your eardrums, okay? I should have muted the mic. I didn't think about it. All right. Make this, this is very important. According to this view, now, uh, according to this view, this has nothing to do with justification. Now, you please note, this is where we, we so hard try to separate these, but it comes so hard to try to maintain separation, it just becomes difficult. But, all right. So this is what they're saying. Justification is outside of you. Justification is what God does 
for you by declaring you to be saved. Boom. It's all outside of you. You do not change. But those who are justified are the ones who are regenerated. And those who are regenerated receive God's spirit. They receive a new nature. They receive a new heart. And because of what happens in regeneration, guess what occurs? Sin is broken. Dominion is broken. Power is broken. That things begin to become mortified. And then you begin to grow in grace and begin to live out a different life. Now, the only problem I have with this is this sounds so similar to what? No, the Catholic view. An infused righteousness. Now here it's not really, it's, you're, you're getting not just an infused righteousness, you're getting a new nature, a new heart, and you've got the spirit inside of you. You should be different. All right. Now, <clears throat> how this connects to justification, I don't think anyone really has a clue. Okay. Right. Yeah, without holiness. Right. If you don't have, and they're talking practical holiness. Without practical holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's that's a major problem. Would everyone agree? All right. Now, what do we do with this? What's our options here? Well, what's the guiding principle that we have to go by? What's the guiding principle we have to go by here? Some, whatever we come up here can't go against what we just learned about justification. It can't. It just cannot. Because they're almost implying that it does, do they not? They're kind of implying that, hey, you better see this change, and if you don't, you're not going to see God. Well, that's making my justification dependent upon, we said it over and over, my sanctification. Now that means, guess what? I have, to, I have to believe, I have to experience regeneration, then I am justified, but that justification is meaningless if I can turn around, not have enough of this change to get into heaven. That, that, that destroys the definition of justification. Here's what I will say. And, and we, we, we'll need to finish this thing on, on sanctification. I don't have an answer here. I don't know. This has probably been the hardest thing I've had to deal with. And of all the things I struggle with when it comes to Christianity, this is the one I struggle with the most. Because any person who comes into Christianity, right? Let's say you read that paragraph. Okay, right? Yeah, just any of these paragraphs. You read this paragraph. This is the vision you get, right? This is the vision you get. Man, I've been living in the world. I'm, I'm so glad I'm saved now. And you walk into church and you think that there's going to be halos on everyone's head. And then every, everyone's going to be like, this week I studied the book of Romans. This week I did this. And this week I did this. And then in the church, everyone, they're mortifying the flesh because sin has been, the dominion of sin has been destroyed. Right? You're set free. And that you're mortifying the flesh. And guess what? You're going to only care about the needs of other people, you're not going to care about yourself. Now, anyone who's been a pastor for five seconds knows that people care only about themselves, right? Because when you get that call on a Monday, 
yeah, I don't, I don't think the Pierces are liking your preaching. It's like, I don't like your preaching. You need to change this, and we need to do this as a church, and we need to do this as a church, and we need to do this as a church. And, and, I'm, and, I'm, and my question, I ask, I've asked every person who ever calls me with that complaint, and I usually use the Pierces as the example because they've been here the longest. Well, if I do what you want, what if the Pierces don't like it? Now, you know, deep down, the Pierces may have sent that person to me, and I, I don't know. But, but I always use the Pierces as the go-to because the point is, so what you want is you want me to do what you want. And whenever I say that, guess what they always say? That's not what I'm saying. Well, then why am I sitting in the Sonic parking lot, you griping at me? I got better things to do. Well, I just think you need to do this, and I think you just need to... You think a lot of things I need to do because you think about your stuff. And then when people say, peace out and leave the church, do they ever care how it could affect anyone remaining? No, they don't care. They could care less. I mean, I've said that before. Well, especially when you, uh, all the Pierce kids were little, it used to make me mad because everyone left. They didn't care if this church fell apart and your kids didn't have a church. They didn't care. They didn't care. They only cared about their stinking selves and what they wanted. And usually the things they go and get are the things they told me they didn't want. Now, you see what happens when you start experiencing that? What happens to you? You start going, what? Does that sound like what we just read? What was the next paragraph? Does the next paragraph make uh, go opposite or does it build on it? Yes. Yet. It's imperfect. So, in other words, hey, dominion of sin is broken. You're going to mortify this. You've got a new heart. You've got a new spirit. However, it's not perfect. Well, I thought it was just broken. It's broken, but it's still there. I got a new heart, uh, but sin's still there. I got a spirit. It's like they're, they're talking out of both sides of their mouth because this is what everyone realizes. You walk in, and here's all these people who are supposed to be so new and supposed to be so different. And guess what you discover about every church member? They're all sinners, and do they, do, do they put God first all the time? No. Do they study the Bible all the time? Now, I mean, how many studies do you need to show that Christians don't study the Bible on a regular and consistent basis? I mean, it's proven here all the time when I'll ask a question about, you know, a verse, and you're looking at me like, oh, I've never heard of that verse. I'm like, uh, it's called John 3.16. Okay. 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 I think even Joel knows that one. I won't put you on the spot. Okay, all right. All right. So, okay, Joel's like, oh, wait a minute, I shouldn't have laughed. Okay, no, all right, I won't put you on the spot. But, and then sometimes I'm like, what, what, what do they do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? I, I just, I don't, I don't know. How do they not know that scripture? Like, huh? How? Right? And so then you start thinking, well, wait a minute, guys. Sin's been broken. You should be mortifying. You should be growing. You should be growing. And, and uh, I've been doing it on, in the series on discipleship, looking at the Discipleology podcast. And they're like, okay, what proves you're a disciple? Engagement with scripture. Okay, well, really? How, how much engagement do I need to see that? What proves is you, you, you set aside worldly affairs for kingdom priorities. Oh, really? I see people all the time just setting aside worldly things so they can spend more time with the things of God. Next, you'll, you'll care more about others than yourself. That sounds good. When do people in the church care more about others than themselves? They always ultimately put them... I mean, there wouldn't be church splits. So guess what you have to do when you read a paragraph like that in sanctification? The next paragraph has to say... 
However, it won't be perfect, and there'll be sin, and it'll be like, well, wait a minute, did it do anything or did it not do anything? And you just told me in the previous paragraph, it better do enough. You're not going to see God. Well, wait a minute, I thought I was justified by faith. Everyone wants Christianity to be this magic bullet that produces amazing change in everyone's life. I wish it to be true. I wish it to be true. I wish it to be true. And I, I was naive enough to think that's the way it was going to be. I got saved at that revival meeting, and when I walked into First Baptist Church, Tuscola, I really thought everyone was going to be different. And it came along that nobody here even cares. Like, I, I mean, I really came up, other than Miss Mack, I was kind of to the conclusion, I don't know if anyone in this church even knows there's a God. Sunday school teacher was a joke. And I let them know that they were a joke. Not a good thing, but I mean, they were a joke. All right? And pastor could have cared less about doctrine and theology. Miss Mack was the one I went to, and she's the one who, who cared. Right? She's 9,000 years old, and she's sitting there with a Bible, you know, saying, hey, let's study doctrine. Okay, well, I thought that's how all Christians were going to be. I thought when I was a teenager, I'm like, okay, hey, hey guys, it's Friday night. Let's come in here, sneak in the church. I, got, I can break in. Okay, we can because I, I was always breaking into the church, and we'll come up here on Friday night, and we'll, we'll read Leviticus. For some reason, they didn't want to do that. I'm like, well, where's that regeneration, that change? I, I am skeptical, because we, don't we sell it that way? I mean, we sell, I mean, all of you have been through this, right? You saw how big the change was going to be, how dramatic it was going to be, how this, whoa, and then what happened? You find in your own self. Now, I'm not saying that we should just say, well, we're good to go. I'm not saying that. But I, I, it's, it's not as this. It, it sounds like that here you are one day, you're lost. The next day you're saved and you got mighty power. And you're like, boom, boom, boom. I can live better than everyone else. And then you start trying. And then you start trying and then. You're like, man, I, was, I got all this power, but for some reason, I still get irritated at my wife. Now, she may be more evil than God is holy, okay? Maybe that's the, uh, like, right? I mean, come on. I mean, that's, when you get into close relationships, that's when you see the failure, right? I mean, like, if you're like, I'm going to live as a monk, at least nobody will see it, Right? But then you're like, wait, wait, churches, I mean, you've all been through church splits. I mean, did you see the powerful work of sanctification in everyone's life? I mean, y'all ended up with what, people at the door? Were they, I don't know if they were armed saying you can't come in? Yeah. So they're just like, you've got to leave and, and, and you were excommunicated? That, yeah, but they didn't go through the actual excommunication process. Like you just got, well, that's to say the crazy stuff that happened with the dancers. I mean, you know, their story. I, I, I don't even know other people. I mean, it's just the church splits. You know, my friend in Nebraska, here's, here's the associate pastor, and he comes up with, here's 12 reasons we got to get rid of the pastor because he's mentally unstable. That's godly? That's horrible. Yeah, I mean, that's horrible. I mean, we saw, we saw how things happen. I've seen it here. People, you know, man, leave and then badmouth and talk about you and talk about you and slander and slander and slander and slander. Where's the godliness? 
So I have a hard time with the doctrine of sanctification. Let me just be honest with you. I have a hard time. Young Christian, I caught on to the MacArthur idea like, do it! You don't! You're not saved! No one's saved! Because that's the way I was taught. Well, then you start going, well, wait a minute. Remember, I, and I even said this years ago when I taught that view, if you're not careful, we're going to draw until we're the only one standing in the circle. And then after a while, we'll start going, well, I don't even know if I belong there. And then we have an empty circle with no one saved. But don't you agree that that definition of sanctification sounds, doesn't it sound wonderful? Sounds like a Disney version of high school. If you ever watch a Disney movie, high school is like, you know, hey, everybody's smiling and it's wonderful. And hey, nobody's doing, no one's shooting heroin in the bathroom. You know, no one's getting beat up. It's like, you know, the most fake version of high school in the history of mankind is a Disney show. Okay, it's not reality. Okay, well, well that, sometimes when I read that definition of sanctification, I'm like, that's not the Christianity I'm aware of. It's not even the Christianity described in the Bible. 1 Corinthians, does it sound like that? The seven churches that is written to in Revelation, they all got major problems, right? Church of Galatians, did they have problems? I mean, all the churches had problems. So whatever sanctification is, it can't be... I don't know. I don't know. I think what we're going to have to do is try to rework our... I think we're down with our definition of justification, Right? I think we got to figure out how do we work sanctification. Because I want to believe, man, I became a Christian and this mighty power entered into me to make me better than everyone else. But Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it makes you look down on everyone else. It does because you're like, what's your problem? What's your problem? What's your problem? What's your problem? Right there, which shows that that's not the mighty power of God. That's pride. And, cause let's just, and, I, and I, I've said this so many times. I think a, a lot of Christianity comes down to one thing only. Your commitment and your discipline. Some people are more committed to their Christianity than others. That's a fact. Some people are more disciplined. And some sins are not your problem. That's very true. Very true. But the issue is none of us should have a problem because supposedly the dominion of sin has been broken. And I just don't believe it's been broken. I, I know that that's borderline heresy, but I'm just, I'm just so sick of hearing about how much power we have in all this transformation. And then you hear about this church falling apart and this pastor falling into sin and this church member falling into sin and this marriage falling apart and this happening and this happening and this happening. And so our, what's our go-to answer every time it happens? What's the go-to answer? They weren't, they weren't saved. They weren't saved. That's the go-to answer. Obviously, they weren't saved. Um, they wouldn't be acting like that. And we would have said the same thing about David. Now they'll say, well, that's Old Testament. That doesn't count. Give me it. Well, then what was Paul whining about the things he wanted to do he couldn't do? Why why was Paul whining about that? Now, some pastors argue that that was Paul talking about his pre-conversion day. So before he was converted, he was wanting to do right? And he was upset that he wasn't? So so what Paul wanted for salvation was to be able to do better. (laughs) Okay. That's, 
But he, in Philippians, he bragged about how great he was. So, and that was, remember he talked about before his salvation, I did, if anybody was going to talk about being righteous, it should be me. Well, then if Romans is about his pre-conversion days, then what is he doing in Philippians? Like, come on, guys. Come on. So, yeah. So, I think we're going to have to figure out a new understanding of sanctification. Agreed? Okay, and, and I know that puts us, yeah, we're just, we're just, we're just, we're going to put ourselves on the label for heretics before it's done. But I, I, here's the thing. Anyone who argues with me about sanctification, what do I always say? Don't argue, just do it. And when I say do it, don't do it just publicly, privately. And you, every person listening to this online, you know your private life rarely lives up to your public life. We all know your thoughts, your desires, your words, your actions are rarely consistent. And even when your public think it looks so good, I'm telling you, I'm, I, you, can see, you can see the corruption even on the outward that looks so good. Don't you? Like you said, you start becoming prideful or you become arrogant. or you become, there, There's something that even taints even when we're doing good. It, it's no, it's just there's no way it can pull that off. Exactly. Right, which, which would be more in line with our definition of justification. This almost goes against our definition of justification. Hey, God gets you started. Now he gives you all that you need. Go do it. Right, I, I got a problem. Right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, these are complicated situations, and we don't want to be in any way trying to deny change or denying the necessity for change. But we're trying to be very honest that when we live out the Christian life, you know, and you've been a Christian for 10, 15, 20 years, you start realizing the reality of your own sin. And I think everyone in this room has felt like Paul. Things I want to do, Lord, I do not do. And the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing them way too many times. Everyone in this room has been in the same place. And if salvation is dependent on me not doing those things and doing the right things... I can't be saved because you demand perfection. And we're going to trust that the only way we can be saved is trusting in the perfection that was imputed to our account because of what Christ did. Um, I pray that if we're trusting in anything else, we'll just give that up right now. And Lord, whatever uh, sanctification does mean, I pray you would help us understand it in a more consistent view with our understanding of justification. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...